In 2011, America celebrated like the ticker tape news stream that, that runs across Times Square had it. Media outlets began to report it and, and share it. And then when you maybe watch your social media feed, you, you saw friends posting about it and celebrating it. Osama bin Laden had been found and brought to justice and killed. For 10 plus years, Americans were on the hunt the military was looking for public enemy number one in the war against terror, and they did it. And in the midst of the celebration, when news media outlets were reporting it and talking about it, record, reporting the events as they got wind of them, they were very quick to also stop and pause and warn you and me and all Americans that while it's a day to celebrate that the mastermind of the 9-11 plot had been caught, that the war was not over. <laughs> like, don't let your guard down. Understand the danger that, that is still real. Yes, he is a powerful and influential person, but there are still many others in that organization and others across the world who seek to bring harm and create terror. The war's not over, they said. And I bring that up today because that's literally where we're at in the story of Esther. I mean, if you've been with us, you've seen God's odds and play over the course of the last four weeks. Like a Jewish orphan girl raised by her nobody cousin wins the bachelorette lottery, if you want to call it that, and gets elevated to queen number one of Xerxes, the most powerful man in, in the world. Then there's Mordecai, that nobody who, who loved his cousin, cared for her, and every day would go to the gate to just make sure she was okay. And he happened to stumble across a plan where the king was going to be killed, and, and, and he reported it, and later he got credit for it, and he got honored in the eyes of the king. In the midst of all that, the, the twists and turns of what you see going on behind the scenes of this wicked, evil man, Haman, who has a thousand-year vendetta, against God's people because of what they had done to him and his family way back when and as the Israelites are wandering in the desert and he wanted to eradicate them, genocide, an entire group of people, eliminate the Jews from the face of planet Earth. And then justice is served, Haman is caught, the truth comes out and he's impaled on the pole that he had made for Mordecai. Now, if you're watching this in a movie, if you're hearing this story unfold, that's usually where it ends, right? Like the villain gets justice, the hero is elevated, and we all live happily ever after. But if you remember back to week number two of the series, if you remember back to week number one in the series, King Xerxes two times now has issued an edict and a decree. He has sealed it in a signet ring, and if you remember the words, Here's chapter three's words, that when a king issues a decree and a verdict and he seals it, it cannot be revoked. So Esther and Mordecai are, are safe and are good. In fact, as we're going to look in just a second, we're going to see they're better than good, but there's still an issue because there's an edict out there that calls for every man, woman, and child who is Jewish to be annihilated. And there it is. That was the wicked plan of Haman. He got the king to sign it, and they sent it out into all the world. 
Dispatchers were sent by couriers to all the provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate. Like, not just kill, not just capture, destroy, kill, annihilate. Like, wipe off of the face of planet Earth. Every young and old, men, women, and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Ader, and to plunder their goods. And this copy of the text was, uh, of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. Like every last person in the kingdom of, of the Medes and, and the Persians was informed that they had the opportunity, they had the uh, open door, they had the ability to kill, annihilate, and destroy any Jew that they came across and take their goods. Like you want to pad your, your real estate portfolio, go ahead and, and kill them all and take their land. You want to double what you have in your checkbook and your retirement accounts, uh, take down a couple Jews that you don't like and take their wealth, put it in your pockets, and it's yours. Like the king has told the people of the world, kill the Jews. So while for Esther and Mordecai, things were good for everyone else, every other Jewish person over the thousands of miles of the known world at that time, there was still fear and trembling because death was imminent. And from the time of this decree to when we see Haman get justice, a couple months have passed and there's still a couple months to go before that day. We're going to talk about that more next week. But for today, I want to see what happens next. How God's odds continued to, to play in the favor of God's people. That same day, so the day Haman died, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai came into the presence of the king for Esther had told him how he was related to her. The unknown big secret is now revealed. The king took off his signet ring, the symbol of his power, which he had reclaimed from Haman. Remember, he had given it to him to show him, you are my second in command. And he presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Now Esther again pleaded with the king. And here's what she said, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agite, which he had devised against the Jews. Like literally Esther, while she had made her request, save me, that's the man. Haman gets what he deserves, justice is served. But she one more time pleads to the king. She comes before him and, and asks for him to, to hear her plea, and he does. He extends that scepter to her, and she arose and stood before him. Like, what are the odds? I mean, just think about it for a second. Like, you remember what kind of person Xerxes was? He was a male chauvinist pig. Like, women didn't just enter the throne room. And now Esther, three times over, has gotten his ear, gotten his attention, and he's carried it out. And now one more time, Esther asks... And here's what she asks, if you go on to read verses 5 through 14. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor, and he thinks it's the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, like, I don't know if she was buttering him up, like she had to make good on trying to make him feel all important and all powerful, but if you think it's the right thing to do, and if you like me, if you want to show favor on me, then let it be written an order overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear 
to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Esther and to Mordecai, the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther and they have impaled him on a pole. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you. Seal it with the king's signet ring for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble, protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and their children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do all this in the provinces of King Xerxes was 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Ader. And a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law and spread across the provinces. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. In other words, the king could not undo his first edict and revoke it. I know that doesn't make sense to you. Like in America, politicians can can get together and say, that's just really a bad law. Let's overturn it. Okay. <laughs> like we vote on it, it's overturned. Not so in those days and age when kings were all powerful. Like to admit that I made a mistake and revoke a law would be to undermine the king was kind of like God. <laughs> but the king could issue another command, an edict, to balance out the other one, which is what he did. And did you catch it? Same day, same month, the Jews have the same right as the others were given to destroy them, to defend themselves, protect themselves, and their family and their possessions. In other words, setting up the scenario that I can't tell them they can't, the edict gives them the right to, but you now have the right to defend yourselves, partner up, find alliances, get ready, and defend your property. Defend your family, defend your possessions, defend your life. And why was that so important? I mean, I want you to think about it for a second. I, I'm guessing most of you would say, well, it's so important because anyone who was a husband who had a wife who had kids and possessions would, would want to protect them and save them, right? This is so important. Well, yeah, but there's got to be more. Like, as you've listened to the whole story, have you been enthralled with the, the princess story? Like, Disney has made billions off of selling that same story. The, the commoner, the nobody becomes the princess, and they live happily ever after. Like, is that what draw you into the story? Imagine yourself as Esther, the hero. The, the plot twists and the, the saga and, and how Haman was behind the scenes, but God was, was working and, and weaving. It's just cool to see how, how that all transpired because it, it really goes against all human odds. Maybe. But none of those things are the why behind the what. Like this wasn't just about the Jews defending their life and their property. There's something more, there's something deeper that I want you to see and I, and I want you to, to have on your heart over the next few minutes as we continue to see what happens next. So the edict goes out. Mordecai in the city of Susa becomes uh, the most popular man, the most celebrated person, the, the one who saved the king and, and saved uh, the Jews, uh, at least his life. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. 
In fact, if you read on in later sections, in every province, in every city to which the edict came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews. So the, the Jews began to celebrate the Jews who were weeping and ha- filled with fear, wondering how long they would survive. Would they have life in only a few months? Are now celebrating and thankful because the king's edict has come out that they can defend themselves. They can align themselves with other people. They can basically protect their property, their families. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. The Jewish nation, which had been basically wiped off the face of planet Earth, spread out as a result of the Babylonian captivity. In whatever city, whatever area, whatever nation, whatever province they were in, are having many celebrations and beginning the preparations to, to protect themselves, defend themselves, and lo and behold, what happens? Other people join the cause. Other people get on board. Other people decide they even want to become Jews because they see what's going on and there was a a sense of awe and, and, and fear, respect for who they were because they could see and know that things like this don't happen. The king doesn't issue duplicate orders and commands that balance each other out unless somebody far more powerful than any human king is on their side. And then the day came. Like you might think that people got the second edict and said, you know, I think I'm going to back off. (laughs) And maybe some did. But history records this reality that on that day, there were still enemies of the Jews who so despised them, so hated them, so wanted to take their possessions, so much wanted to annihilate them from the face of planet Earth. For whatever reason, for whatever personal or uh, gain or personal vendetta, on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Ader, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. Now on this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. And no one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. All the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. And Mordecai was in a prominent, was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled themselves and protected themselves to get relief from their enemies. And they killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. All this happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. We're going to come back to that feasting and joy next week. But did you catch what happened? The Jews gathered, the Jews assembled, the Jews defended themselves. They didn't go on the offensive, because some people would say, you know, this is pretty strong and extreme that that they went out and killed people. They were defending themselves from the enemies who were coming, the right that they had, both from a worldly perspective and a God-given right to defend themselves. And 75,000 of their enemies were defeated that day. And they rested the next day. (laughs) Like it ended in a day. 
like Haman's plan, which was to annihilate them and completely wipe them off of face, the face of planet Earth, went the other direction, and not just slowly but surely, not just moving the line, not just gradually gradually getting closer and closer to the, the city and penetrating the fortress. No, in a day, one day, they conquered their enemies and it was over. It was done. And you might say, well, that, that's happened before. You've got to remember the Jews were so spread out that for this hatred and this war to be shut down in a day is not human. It's God. And it's God's odds at work. And I want you to have that question I asked you before, why, of this story. As I take you through, to, take you through three truths that I think really are fundamental and underlying for the book of Esther. Like as much as it's a great story, as much as it's intriguing, as, as much as it's different than a lot of other books of the Bible for many different reasons, there are three truths when it comes to God and three truths that I think you and I can take to heart 2,500 years later that we can learn from this story and maybe see why it was included in the, the book. Because this book never once mentions God and it's found in his book that is all about him and who he is and what he's done for you and me, the great things he has done. This is just one of the list of the many things he has done. And here's the truth I think the book of Esther lays out. We talked about it in week one with providence and sovereignty. God's power is always working for the good. Like satraps and rulers and governors and provincial officials do not begin to be in fear of a man named Mordecai who's a Jew without God. It goes against the odds. Like no woman can enter into the place of the king and basically lay out multiple times, here's what I think you should do. Unless there's a God who's at work behind the scenes getting the right person in the right place at the right time. Not just fate, not just luck, but, but God's time, God's plan. There's no way Jews worldwide could organize in that powerful of, of effort. There's no way that the people of that day and age would have become Jews or turned to the Jews or supported the Jews without God at work. <laughs> that goes against the odds. My friends, that is God's sovereignty, his rule and his reign because of his providence. His rule and reign for you and me, for his people. Uh, the story of Esther is this great reminder as you see the, the, the end of the story, the conclusion of, of how it all comes together. God's power is always working for the good. Remember that theme verse, I read it before. In all things, God works for the good. All things. And I need you to remember that and understand that because Esther and Mordecai in the middle of it did not recognize or think this was good. Like to, to see the things that were happening and transpiring, Haman's plan and all it could do, it devastated, it broke their heart. They pleaded and begged for the king to act. There was no hope for their people. All would have been lost. They would have been, have been having funeral after funeral until the last one was buried and no one was left. But God was at work for the good of those who love him, believers. And the nation of Israel was anything but perfect. In fact, at this point in their history, a lot of them had rebelled against God, and you might wonder, why would God step in to human history and work something out for their good? Because 
there was a whole lot of bad and rebellion against God in their, their story. And yet God stepped in and worked in human history for their good, who've been called according to his purpose. And I need you to remember that last phrase as you think about how God works, he uses his power to, to work for the good. Because not everything in this life is good. I'm not going to spin it that way. I, I'm not going to have you sit in my office and when you get diagnosed with cancer and say, oh, come on, this is going to be good. It's going to work out. It gets bad. But this side of heaven and this life is not the ultimate purpose and plan God has for you and me. He might heal you from it. Or it might be the, the, the instrument that he uses to bring you home to him, which is his ultimate purpose. And arriving there, while the loss and pain here, there's nothing good or enjoyable about it. That is for the ultimate good. And the Apostle Paul had a thorn in his flesh. He was a missionary for God. It was slowing him down and maybe impacting his work. He pleaded for it to be taken away from him. How can this be for my good? How can it be for their good? How can it be for the church's good? And God says, no, I'm not going to take it away. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so the Apostle Paul celebrated all the more. <laughs> when I'm weak, then I'm strong. There, there was something good for him spiritually, even in bad. And on a big scale, this story allows us to bring that down to whatever scale it's on. And remember, God says this. God works and uses his power for the good. And I need you to hear that truth. Esther reveals that truth. The Bible reinforces that truth. And when you have that truth in your mind, then you can see this truth which I think is really the ultimate story of Esther. Most theologians would say it is. Why is it included? God controls history to preserve his people and fulfill his promises. Like, what is God's ultimate purpose? What do the pages of Scripture tell us God's ultimate purpose is for you, for me? He wants one thing for you and for me and for all people. To end up there. To be with him in eternity to know the joy and peace and perfectness that, that God has intended for you and for me. That's his purpose. It goes back to his original plan when sin came into the world. And throughout history and time, God has been controlling it to preserve his people and fulfill his promises. You know why the story of Esther was such a big deal? Like, have you thought about it and connected the dots? It's not just a human drama story. It's not just a rags-to-riches story. It's not just a overwhelming odds being conquered with God behind it. At the end of the day, the, the story of Esther is not just about the Jews being able to defend themselves. It's about the Jewish line being preserved. Like, you know when this came in history? It's in the 480 B.C. range. The, the stories of Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah are Old Testament historical accounts, which are basically right at the end of the Old Testament recorded books of the Bible. Like, shortly after the time of Esther, maybe when this book was written, God stopped speaking to his people. Like, there were no more prophets who were writing down the word and delivering 
verbally inspired messages. God went silent. Didn't speak anymore. Until literally Jesus came and made his first squawk and the truth made his appearance on earth. I don't know the exact order of all these books, but Esther might have been one of the last historical books of the Old Testament of God's people before the arrival of Jesus. And there's significance in that. Because if it wasn't for God, the one who's behind the odds, if it wasn't for Esther and for such a time as this, if it wasn't for Mordecai at the gate, you know who would have gotten his way, you know who would have won? Potentially Haman. Like if Haman's plan actually gets carried out and every man, woman, child who is Jewish is annihilated, destroyed, and wiped out, you know what happens to the promise? God's promise was that Abraham's descendants, David's descendants, Solomon's descendants, born in Bethlehem descendants, would not have come true. Like if Haman had his way, no wonder why the devil was weaving evil in him because this was a potential way to, to cause God to, to fail in his plan. But Esther reveals otherwise. God controls history to preserve his people and fulfill his promises. When the Apostle Paul said that great word of, in all things God works, he follows it up with this. What shall we say in response to these things? If we're facing trouble, if we're being persecuted, if we're wondering about our purpose, if there seems to be no plan, if in this life there is trouble, Paul says, remember his providence. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Look at the cross. Remember the manger. Visualize the empty tomb. All those things are promises fulfilled from God for you. He worked through history and time to preserve his people so that through his people, his one and only son could take on human flesh, do what you and I could not do, live a perfect life, so that the story does not end for us here or in hell, but with him in heaven. And that's the story of Esther, God working in history to preserve his people and fulfill every promise he's ever made, to fulfill his promise to Abraham, to David, through Micah, through Isaiah. And not one word of God fails. And I need you to see that because when you take those two truths and you tie them together, his promises to you and to me, the promises he says that in all things he will work for the good, in the things when he says, I'll never leave you or forsake you, and when he promises to forgive you, there's no sin so great that you've done that, that guilt trumps grace. When he points you to the cross and says, it is finished, when he, he tells you one day there's a place for you in heaven, whatever promise it is that, that he has given, that sees us through dark times. I've overcome the world, even though you will face trouble. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition, present your request to God. The peace of God will guard your heart. Those words and those two truths lead to this final truth that I believe is a huge takeaway for us 2,500 years later from, from Esther. The odds of God 
making good on his promises to you and to me, just like he did to his people, just like he did to Abraham, just like he did to David, are 100%. I started watching college football yesterday, and I watched college game day, which I just kind of enjoy, and two guys picked my team to win the national championship. I'm like going, but what are the odds? Like I didn't even look at Vegas. I think it's like 13 to 5 or something like that, but... Who's talked? Who's really looked? And there is this team called Alabama. (laughs) They're pretty good. It might happen, but it might not. Injuries could happen. They might not. The ball could bounce the wrong way. The weather could go bad. Maybe or maybe not. But no prediction any of them make is going to make it happen. When it comes to promises of God, the ones on the page of Scripture, I need you to hear this, and I need you to see this, and the book of Esther reinforces it. God controls history to preserve his people and to fulfill his promises. He did it. The cross proves it. Jesus arrived. Jesus came. And how will we not also, along with him, brothers and sisters, graciously give you all things for your good? I don't know what that is, what that means, how he'll use it, It won't always feel good. It might be really bad, but God promises he will work all things for the good of those who love him according to his purpose, which is to get you there with him. And along the way, he used people like Esther to get him there so that you and I may be saved eternally. If you remember anything about the book of Esther, I hope you hold on to that truth because Esther reveals it. It's much more important than the orphan girl rags to riches story of becoming queen. It's far more intriguing than a one-day battle victory. All of them together remind us of that. Remind us of that. Which means the promise of that you'll make good on one day. Let's pray about that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and your promises. In life, when we wrestle with purpose, remind us you'll work all things out for our good, the good of those who love you, according to your purpose. Lord, when there is trouble and when there are anxious moments, when we don't know where we're going to find relief or help, remind us of how you work and operate in history. You'll get us where you want us, when you want us, and you'll be with us. You'll never leave us or forsake us. That's your promise. When sin and guilt overwhelm, Lord, Remind us of grace and forgiveness in the cross of Jesus. You did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for us all. And your promise is this, that you will graciously give us all things for our good. So Lord, I call on you for that for our church, whatever that good is, whatever we face, trouble or hardship, persecution or famine. Lord, we know who you are. When you're involved, the odds are in our favor. And you will always deliver on your promise to work for our good. We're going to hold you to that, God, because we know how good you are. We pray this, Lord, in your powerful name.